Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Katie, and welcome to 360 View. This is where we explore a broad range of ideas on all things affecting your body, your wellness, and your mind. Today we have the pleasure of chatting to Meg Clary. So Meg is a level two accredited counsellor who has spent the last 20 years studying in order to be able to offer counselling services to people from all walks of life. Meg offers a rare insight into generational patterns, mental wellness, raising little people and doing your own work. Meg isn't about telling you how to fix your life, but more about assisting you in finding the strengths and resources that you already have and then working with you to understand yourself in a more in-depth way. Our chat with Meg flowed through many different areas and her simplicity for complex topics was dumbfounding in every sense of the word. Yes. Wow. I, it's, it's very interesting because I think it's something that parents, like even when Mike, because my parents are in their mid-60s, so when they were 20, because obviously my parents were 20 when they had, is that there was no book around everyone pretty much learned from what they were environmentally exposed to as far as what their parents did with them. Um, like our grandparents were the ones went through wars, stuff like that, yep. like how to pretty much the only thing you needed to do was be kept physically safe. Like you were saying, physically as far as fed, watered, roof, school, education, and some pretty sort much. of projection as far as where you're heading. Hurry up and decide what you're doing for the rest of your life. Decide where you're going, where you want to do, what what happens. Don't do that. That's probably not going to not going to support you very well. You probably need yep. to head down this track. This is what we need to do. And pretty much, Katie and I have talked about it as well previously. Oh. A lot is one generation wants to make the next generation not have us as difficult. So one generation wants to step it forward. It's called evolution. We've done it for a yep. long time. We want to make sure that the next generation doesn't doesn't have it as hard as what we've had it. So potentially, as you're saying as well, is that it's more evolution has opened up the door for people to start thinking outside of what potentially is just physical wellness, as in you have something to eat, you can move around, yeah. you're okay, you've got clothes on your back, you're uh, all sweet. Because that was restricted. That's from, Yeah. Yeah, from people who've gone through wars and things. Those mm. were the things that are restricted. So they want their yeah. generation, as long as they have a good job and they're safe and they're physically healthy. well, they're healthy, that's it. And, like, we see it a lot between our two generations is um, just a different difference in how you're raised. Completely different, yeah. And, Ben, I think you'll understand this. So my parents are in their late 60s now and, yeah, they were in their 20s. I mean, yeah, they're in their late 60s. So the things that they focused on for me as a child growing up were material possessions because those were things that they didn't have. Yeah. And then as a parent myself, though, I was then at the point where I thought about all the things that I felt like I'd missed out on growing up because my parents didn't have a lot of money. Mm. And that was what I tried to make up for with my kids. Ironically, what they needed was not what I gave them. And I, and I think that we find now with a lot of those kids, and Katie, like you're in that era of my kids' age, mm. is that you guys have probably got every material possession you could prob- you could think of. Or the availability to it. We were yeah. we, um, opposite. We didn't have a lot of money as kids, so we didn't actually have, like my parents were probably very much focused on that we were emotionally 
well and that we were loved and everything like that, but materially we didn't have. So I guess like what I'm curious about is, again, how do you stop that flip back and forth? Because if we're talking about this being an evolutionary thing and one generation is given all their emotional needs but nothing physical and then the next one, how do we stop that flip? Well, you can't because you're talking about it. So you, your parents raised you in an era where that can happen, that they looked after your emotional needs, but how many of your peers had everything that they wanted but the parents didn't care about where they were at at night and all, of, and all that and sort life. of thing? And that and all happened it, yeah. in the same generation. Yeah. Yeah. That happened as well with, like I think, like Katie was yeah. saying before, but see, my, our parents, and as you would as well, our parents, when they were younger, everything was bought on cash. So if you didn't have cash to pay for something, you didn't get it. You saved, Correct. you had to work up to it. You had to, yeah. you were told if you didn't save for it, you didn't get it. What's going yeah. through? And I think what Katie's, like she, obviously her parents didn't see the value in doing that, but a lot of the more emotional around that and they didn't have a lot of money, that's all fine. But the thing is, is in her family probably had the potential to get credit cards, be able to afterpay, be able to get everything. So what happened was the missing emotional stuff in some stuff we could give more things to. We could go, here you go. You, I may not, yeah, I may not give you a hug and a cuddle and a, you know, listen to what's going on in your in in your life or potentially what's mm-hmm. going on with it. Is that, but I could give you a Xbox, uh, Xbox, a TV, uh, you know, like clothes, all these designer stuff and all this mm-hmm. other stuff, you know, like that's, I think that's where, and in that generational stuff happened yeah. is it was more material, like you said, because all of a sudden now the gap between the middle class, a little bit wealthy, very poor, yeah. it sort of started to separate, you know, like it, it, it sort has. of blended and where it was. And if you also look at that, we find that a lot of parents now, so when when I was a kid, it was really only just becoming acceptable for both parents to work. And that was in the 80s when the interest rates were through the roof. Mm. So like owning a home was really tricky and all that stuff was there. So that was kind of a start of that double income required for Mm. living. So you then went from having someone in the home who met the needs of the children for that emotional attachment and stuff to no parents at home, an era of latchkey kids who are then raising children that they don't know how to connect with and they go, oh, um, well, if they're gaming, they're not bothering me. Yeah, if they find their own enjoyment, they're not really annoying. What I've And what I can do is give them something that they could potentially just amuse themselves with. They don't need any interaction with what I actually am doing or where I I I am. Yep, I have to provide absolutely no stimulation for this except for a valid internet connection and some power. And that's scary because then they're not, like I suppose it's also easier because you know that if they're sitting in front of a TV laptop game thing, Mm -hmm. they're safe. They're sitting there, they're safe, they're entertained. Like what more could you want when if as soon as they go outside, you have something to worry about. Like there's things outside that can get them. Ironically, there's things that can get them on those computers too, but a lot of parents... Um, uh, grossly undereducated on the dangers of the internet, in my experience. Mm. Yeah. And what happens is being more engaged on those things, what do we yep. lose? 
uh, like you had said before, as far as your wellness and your continuum and everything, the social yep. interaction and how to interact with people on a daily basis. And potentially when someone says, hey, I don't like you, you're okay to turn around and go, that's fair enough, I can move on or be stuck. That's right, and, and be stuck with I don't know what's going on here. Everyone in my life I've just been able to see on a screen or they're my mum or my dad or my interacted yep. family or immediate family and people that are friends, someone suddenly says they don't like me. Oh, my goodness, what's going on? I don't it's know like how to react emotional to that. Response well, you it. don't know how to respond because everybody mm. in your life, no one's ever said, I don't That's like right. you. Mm. Um, but you've also got the flip side of mobile phones they may actually be the death of me in the high school um so when i was a kid if you got bullied at school it stopped when school stopped yeah it's a big yeah. thing like it stopped it yeah. didn't happen they were never going to ring your home phone that was attached to the wall to yep. say things to you bullying doesn't stop now it's no. constant yeah. so it and teenagers by and large i find are actually quite a vicious little group mm -hmm. um you know, it's almost like the, a pack of hyenas around an injured gazelle at times in that if they see a weakness, they go for it. So a bit of group um, mentality as well. Very much so. And wanting to be accepted by the group. So therefore not doing anything to go, oi, actually, no, this is not okay. Um, and so when you when you put all this hot pot of stuff, so we've got parents that don't know how to manage emotions because we we weren't necessarily taught how to manage emotions ourselves because we certainly grew up in an era of children are seen and not heard. That's exactly right. Then we're having children that we're inadvertently, especially in times of stress, I do call it auto-parent. It's when you're really stressed out and your mum's yelling at your kids over your shoulder but she's not actually in the room. <laughs> yes. so, you know, you're like, oh, I was never going to say that. Oh, my God, I'm turning into my mother. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got that, which impacts our kids. And we know that because we know that we're not okay with how we express ourselves at times. And then our kids are growing up in that and they're taking that pain and inability in to a world where we're pushing them. What are you going to do with your life? What do you need to do now? Or... They're worried about being perfect all the time because mum and dad have always taught us that it's very important how we present outside. Um, you know, how many families are completely dysfunctional behind the front door, but you would never know to look at them in public? It's such a perfect face on the outside. It is because everyone thinks, I love this, everyone thinks that we have to be perfect. Mm. And the irony of everyone thinking that is none of us are, but no one's willing to admit, actually, you know what? I'm really struggling this week. I've had this happen, this happen, this happen. I'm feeling really sad and I'm in a bit of a slump. Hmm. I don't have it all together. No. And then if you don't have it all together, people automatically assume that you're a complete nutcase hmm. instead of just going, so how can I help you out? Or do you want to go for a walk? Can can I take you out for coffee or do something like super simple to build a connection? We're like, well, have you been to your doctor? Have you done this? You know, so struggling with how your brain is coping with things suddenly becomes a medical problem, not a whole body problem. Yeah, mm. so the first port of call, and I suppose that becomes where it's scary as well to admit that 
maybe everything isn't a hundred percent okay is because it's scary for someone to first come back at you and say, well, have you thought about seeing a doctor? It's like, well, it's not that serious. I'm just not like doing amazing. I'm not doing terribly, but I'm not doing amazing. And, you know, if you can't admit to your own self or your closest family and friends that you're not doing okay, how the hell are you going to walk into a doctor's office and in 15 minutes go, well, here's a laundry list of everything that's going on in my life? Because we all know doctors are incredibly busy, you know. You've got your five, five, 10, 15 minutes. For most people, they need a hell of a lot more than five, 10 or 15 minutes. Um, Like one of the rules of counselling is when you first meet with a client and you ask them, what brings you here today? I can tell you right now, in 100% of the cases of people that I work with, what brings them to see me today is not the problem. Mm, yeah, it's they've just tried to look for problem. something. They've, they might have been, you know, catalyzed to get to me because X, Y, Z is going on. But the reason that X, Y, Z is going on is because A, B, C through to, you know, W happened and X, Y, Z is just the bit that's pushed me over the edge. Mm. Um, and for me to get to what the actual problem is that's driving a lot of this, the minimum is an hour. Mm. Like I, I, sometimes you can get there in the first session. Sometimes. Yeah, it takes a lot for people to open up to to actually explain. And we've talked about it more around a physical sense in some mm. of our do's and don'ts in our body um, maintenance. maintenance. As yep. far as sometimes people come in and they'll either deadlift or do something like that and suddenly it's the deadlift that, that hurt their back, but potentially they've actually had throughout the day or throughout the week issues with their posture or their lower back or how they're sitting or something like that, all of a sudden we've asked them to do something more and their body's gone, hey, this is just too much. I can handle all the other stuff. Yeah, but doing this, I'm out. So then they've just packed it in, but they've gone, oh, the deadlift's what actually doable. You know, Katie's talked to people about how potentially to step it back, like you're saying, Mm. is throughout someone's sort of either life cycle or day cycle as they're going through is what's potentially brought them all the way to this, that it's made that be the catalyst that's just snapped us over the edge. And one of the things to consider with that is is our connection with the world now means that, all right, when was the last time you saw a piece of good news on the news? Mm. Like I don't even watch this stuff. I find it so incredibly distressing. Hmm. So if you're a person that watches the news or has the news on or you're paying attention to what's going on, we actually pick up a lot of vicarious trauma from that. And they saw, and I I suppose uh, watching all the footage that's just like literally my news source is Facebook. So I don't consider myself on top of the news at all unless I specifically go looking for something. Hmm. But watching all those videos of the floods and, you know, cars getting washed away and everything, that can be incredibly distressing for someone to the point where it can actually impact their mental wellness. And it's not because they're in it or it's happened to them, but we see so many other people's trauma right in front of us. But then it might have brought back memories of, an experience that happened to them when they were really young that they don't even remember Mm. where something happened. Like, have you ever met a kid that's just petrified of water for absolutely no reason? Yeah. 
And then you talk to the parent and you find out like they slipped in the bath one time when they were like 12 months old or something. And it can be something as simple as that. And they can't explain it, but their body knows. Mm, subconscious so, type thing how do you work yeah. through that like if that's so subconscious and obviously like it's like it's something we've talked about a lot is how far do you go back like how deep down inside are you meant to go there's, there's two schools of thought on that katie um and both of them are equally effective so it, again it depends on hello dog um it depends on the person so for some people I would use a very strength-based, future-focused way to look at it. We go, okay, yep, you know what? You've had all this stuff happen and we can't change any of it. What changes do you want to make to start living the life that you want in the future now? Um, And so that's solution-focused therapy. And uh, so it's a modality where we, we literally go, okay, that's cool, yep, it's all happened. Where are we going to? We can't change this. On the other side of things, you then have that like long-term psychotherapy where you really unpack the childhood experiences and the teenage experiences. And obviously you can't really go back past what someone remembers, but you'd be surprised how often little things are triggered by a smell or an experience smell especially olfactory memories are incredibly strong um and it can be little things that you remember and then you go oh wait but that happened and then my mum said this and that was when I started doing xyz and then you can actually talk about the veracity of whatever it was mum said and be able to go okay so now when my head says this I need to address it and go no that's not true. We're going to look at it this way now. So it's going to depend on the client themselves. Um, Solution-focused therapy is incredibly easy to make the tiniest little change in a positive step. Yeah. So, you know, if you say, okay, well, and it's the same as that lady with MS who just started drinking a glass of water a day. Mm. It doesn't need to be an overhaul of your life. You can literally start with changing one action a day. And it's creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit in most cases. Mm. We like to be, and as you said before, about anxious about either new jobs, new environments, new areas, things to move to. That's out of normality. So to us, that seems like so not far-fetched, but it's just not normal. So we don't know. You know how anxious people go when they're either going to a new airport, when we used to be able to fly, new airports, um, hotels, areas. You know, some people can end up getting really anxious about as far as what they're going to encounter and what there is and, and whether straight away they're going to negative. There's people here I don't know. There's a potential that someone could rob me. There's potential I could get, you know, on this train and derail yeah. and something, you know, it's not a train that I, I don't know what the maintenance schedule is in this country. It doesn't look very good. It doesn't, you know, like total neg- negativity and always on the bad outcome to actually not just potentially yeah. see that's an experience that I can open myself up to and go, hey, yep, that's potentially could happen, but let me look at everything. They're the ones with the really overactive amygdalas. <laughs> They're like, mm. worst case scenario, plan for it. It will happen. Or <laughs> pessimists, I believe we call them. Yeah, um, yeah. it makes it difficult to try and go through. 
It can. And that's where you start having to work through your fears and anxieties. But the other thing I find is like working with a lot of kids and you'd be surprised at the number of seven-year-olds I get that are incredibly anxious. Mm. Um, So the the research statistics show that around 70% of children with anxiety have a parent that has anxiety, one or more parents with anxiety. Is that learned or is that? It becomes an environmental factor. So if a child grows up in a household where mum needs to follow certain routines to get things done to be able to go to the shops, the likelihood of that child developing similar habits is really, really high. I'd be sneaky enough to say that 100% of the kids that I see with anxiety have a parent with some anxious tendencies or undiagnosed or diagnosed anxiety. Mm. Yeah, sure. was, and that's, that's me being cheeky. I know what the research stats are. Um, but, yeah, I would say for every parent, every kid that I get that's referred for through anxiety, when I talk to the parents, I go, okay, so which, which, which one of you is it that does this? Hmm. And they can usually say, oh, I've got anxiety, I'm medicated for it, or he's exactly like his father, or whatever it is. Hmm. And the look on most seven-year-olds' faces when you go, hey, so did you know that adults worry about stuff too? They're like, mm. really? I'm like, yeah. And they're just like blown away because they think that they're the first person that's ever been scared of an imagination in their lives. Wow. They've never even contemplated that people get scared because what do we do as adults? We try and protect our children from things. And that includes scary stuff. You hide all of that. Like they never experience it. We don't talk about things that scare us, things that make us sad. We we just don't do it. So these kids don't know this is normal. And you give those things the chance to make you scared. So you have the chance to give that to them to say this is scaring me or the power to it. Mm. Yeah. To scare, can, to scare you or interact that way. And the thing that you've got to remember, what I find is most of my kids that end up really, really anxious, they're generally watching stuff that was probably questionable. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and this is as a parent, I fully admit that my youngest child was watching vampire movies at way too young an age. Um. But he had a really good grasp on reality. So a lot of these kids that are highly anxious also have amazing imaginations. So, you know, I've had conversations with kids about um, one of my favourites, love this guy to death. The big bad wolf was going to break into his house by using the garage door remote opener and then he would destroy the house so we then had this amazing discussion about how wolves couldn't possibly do that because wolves don't have opposable thumbs yep so struggles to press the button (laughs) exactly and the button was also kept in the house but it was just that working through that story and using the stories that they have to kind of identify hey yep you're scared about this so let's see what the likelihood of that actually happening is and, and with a lot of my older kids, you know, like how many cliches are there about worry? Was it, who was it said, you know, at half the things I worried about never even happened. And when I talk to a lot of the older kids, I say, okay, you worry about this stuff all the time. Tell me how much of it has actually happened. 
and most of them wouldn't go over 10%. Mm. You know. Like almost worried of the unexpected rather than like what you can't control rather than what yeah. happened. You're not working from experience. No, and, I mean, kids have amazing, amazing imaginations. They can come up with some really corking stuff out of the most innocuous place. Like my kid that was scared of the big bad wolf, that came from reading The Three Little Pigs. Mm. Yeah. She's a kid's like, story. Uh, well, it is, but it's actually a really scary kid's story if you think about it. <laughs> like the, the fairy tales were never actually designed as children's stories. If you go back and look at the originals, that was super scary. Yeah. And obviously it's um, up to different kids and, like, how they respond to stuff. But when we have the two ends of the spectrum of you don't want to over-shelter them and you don't want to shield them from any fear or worry or anger or anything, but then you have these things like stories, like something that seems a little bit scary but not bad, but then that gives a kid anxiety. Where's the middle ground? Like, how are you meant to know what to do? It's on a very individual basis. I think one of the big things that I would say is we need to be, as adults, far more willing to allow our children to fail. We have failed our children if we do not let them fail. The old participation ribbon. Oh, my God. You should not be awarded for just turning up. Thank you, Meg. (laughs) (laughs) That kills me. Um, You know, like... There is an expectation, and we see this. We see this a lot in schools where, you know, like we have risk behaviour management systems. The kids know that system inside out, and they will call the teacher out if they feel the teacher hasn't followed the rules. Mm. Yeah. 20 years ago, that would never have happened. Mm-mm. But they literally get rewarded for just turning up. And if a kid doesn't do the work, it's apparently it's not their fault. It, there's always is. a reason. And, and I'll preface that. That's not every parent, but that's a good chunk of them. Are like, oh, they didn't have the resources. Oh, the teacher didn't do this. Oh, they didn't understand. And my response is, did they ask for help? Did they email the teacher? Like there's so many different ways mm. that you can seek help. Um, you know, I have kids come and write assignments with me in session because that's the best use of our time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it's and for some of them it can just be simple as they're really embarrassed because oh, I tell you what I hear most, and it's always from the girls, I don't want to waste anybody's time. So they feel that asking for help is wasting their teacher's time. And I'm like, I'm yet to meet a teacher that is not excited about a kid asking for help. Yeah, that's right. And particularly it becomes it's it's their job or their what they actually got into the, the um industry for is to help yeah. kids educate children, look Learn. for the next generation, yeah, like learning yeah. and trying to advance. Yeah. So yeah, it makes it. But there is that thing. yeah, there is that element of, well, if I just have a go, that's good enough. Mm, not putting your it's, effort in. It's it's really not. It's really not. Um I I really like for kids to be able to say, I did my absolute best. It doesn't matter what the result of that best is, but they did their absolute best. And and I think there's a lot of pressure around kids to get A's all the time. And I look at that. I love teaching them about the bell curve associated with IQ. 
they're like, oh, everyone should be able to get A's. And then I show them the bell curve and I show them that only 2% of people in the world sit in that super high over 140 IQ. Mm. And they're like, oh, I said, okay, so everyone that walks into a school should be able to achieve a C unless there is an identified learning disability. Yeah. But you've actually got to put in a minimum amount of effort to get that. Yeah. Mm. A's are achievable, but not every kid is going to get an A. And then you get these young people that are like, well, if I don't get straight A's, then I'm completely useless. And I'm like, is that taking into consideration where your strengths lie? Because it should be across the board. Yeah. Like Like that's the perception is that you can't fall down somewhere. No, and potentially it ends up being being that it may not be mental, like doing that or intellectual is the strength. No. People need to understand that there's certain jobs or roles to play in society as far as everyone doing and what what part they're playing in the bigger picture. Sometimes yeah. some people's thing is actually doing the common sense things or putting things together or assembling or how person's mental, they work, how it works. How so potentially how it's been taught to them may not yep. be the best way for them to learn it. Maybe outdoing stop, see, monkey, see, monkey, do while I'm doing it in particular is actually how they learn and then reinstill that. Yeah. So I actually use that with a lot of my kids. There's this really easy test you can do that t- to teach you how you learn because you say to a kid, do you know how you learn? And they're like, wow. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, let's work it out. Um, and once they know, I then teach them how to harness that information. So for a kid that's a visual learner, we talk about using pictures to map stuff out and color coding stuff and things and um, like for me I'm mostly auditory so I've got to listen to stuff but I can also read it and get away with it Mm. but reading it and listening to it at the same time that's a big win for me and you can teach them to do things in multiple ways because typing something out fires up a different part of a brain to handwriting And it's quite funny because I've discovered for myself over the years of all my studies um, that if I handwrite my assignments or if I handwrite my work, I do a far better job than if I type it out. My brain works better handwriting. Hmm. That included a 7,000-word master's thesis. That was handwritten handwritten first. Yeah, I rewrote my um, intro 18 times. It was beautiful. But I think better. And you can, I can see that when I look at my writing. If I've typed something out compared to what I handwrite, it's completely different. Do you, and just with that, do you find that certain people with how they learn has a tendency to go a certain way as far as when we're talking about mental wellness or, or, or you see more people on one spectrum of how they've learned or how they've interacted to go there? I, I think tactile, people that learn by doing tend to be more physical. And if you're more physical, you're already ahead of the ball game. Mm. Um, because when you're, you're, when you're active, your brain's having all those happy chemicals, the serotonin and the dopamine, and it's making those connections, which we know is good for your mental wellness. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're in a, a sedentary job, or you do all your learning by sitting down and writing all the time and you're not moving a lot, you're going to have to work a lot harder because whilst you're stretching your intellectual side of things, you're not being very physical. And, I mean, like, I wear my Galaxy watch. Some days 
because I'd be lucky if I walked 3,000 steps. Mm. Because if I'm sitting and I'm engaging and I'm I'm doing my job all day, I'm not moving. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you're in a physical physical person or you're a person that learns by doing things and replicating stuff, you're probably already ahead of the ball game, I think. Yeah. Yeah, just interesting to see which ways you potentially see how people learn to, to what might affect them um, later on or how it interacts as far as expressing themselves or potentially most, doing things. Mostly what we see, Ben, is the kids that are really kinesthetic that they learn by doing, they're the ones that don't cope in classrooms because they need to be moving. Mm. Yeah. They're the ones, they're down. the disruptive kids. They do really, really well in the hands-on subjects. And they're shocking in anything theory-based because there's no way that you can physically do writing a house assignment other than writing a house assignment. Yeah. No. Yeah, like, right. you know, if you ask them to make a diorama, we're cool. But if you ask them to sit right down and write a, you know, a thousand-word paper, we've got problems. Yeah, have you seen – there's been a lot of stuff around now as well about how different schools are starting up. You've seen yeah. a lot with some of that, and I've seen it down. Uh, like your Steiner you know, and. Yeah, like different ways of kids doing yeah. that stuff and potentially working them. out, yeah, working what works for them. And then uh, adults or parents obviously working out that, that that's the better way for them to excel, to pull them into some of those. Yep. You'll find that generally speaking, those are the really, really integrated parents. Yeah. Um, so mainstream schooling, by and large. So I read recently the most incredible paper by a guy who basically said that public schooling system, and that includes private schools really, is the greatest social experiment we've ever run. So we are literally 100 years into mass schooling because it never existed before that. Mm. And we're not getting it right, or at least I don't think we're getting it right. Mm. Um, because... You, you, you just look at the, the graduate outcomes and the dropout rates. We're not getting it right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have way too many round pegs for square holes. And certainly my observation in senior schools specifically is that it's very geared to you're either going to go to university or you're going to do a trade. And anyone that's sitting in that hole, I really don't know what I want to do world, there's no space for them, which is sad. Yeah, do you think, Meg, this might be a stretch, but if kids were able to learn, like if they had a method of determining how they learnt best and then they went through school learning the way that they're meant to learn, that we would see less issues with mental health and would see better mental wellness on a whole because they would be better and they would be achieving what they need to? I I think you would, yes, because... If we're modifying the system to fit the person, we're going to get better outcomes. Like if you think about it, for a kid that, say, has ADHD and has to be on Ritalin to sit down and shut up in a classroom because that's what you do in a classroom, has no external ability to sit. And, like, they've got fidget toys and everything and I think they're worlds ahead of where they were 30 years ago. If that kid was in a situation where they could ascertain how they learn best and it was supported in a one-on-one basis, they are going to be much happier with how they behave in a classroom because they're not going to feel like they're doing the wrong thing all the time. 
No. But for a kid that calls out all the time, that actually has zero control over that, and they're always getting told to sit down and shut up, they're not going to feel good about themselves because nobody wants to be told to sit down and shut up constantly. Not repetitively. No. Certainly to teach. just breaks people into what they're doing. Yeah, something's wrong. Uh, and, like, I had that just the other day. I had a kid and it was, look, he fully admitted he wasn't following the classroom rules and put your hand up. But then at that point, because of the what panned out after that, he was just like, well, what's the point? And from something that happened at 10 o'clock in the morning, his whole day tanked hmm. because he didn't fit the mould. And I suppose that's scary when you get a kid that either A, can't control it or B, they're actually engaged with the syllabus and they're engaged with what they're getting. And so then they do do something like they call out or they're a little bit excited or they're not, they're not in their box. And then they're automatically squished down into the box. Like that just squished any passion they had for anything they were learning about. Correct. So they're not going to call out ever again. In fact, they'll probably just go, why bother? They'll disengage and not learn at all. They'll look out the window and look at something else. Or just be disruptive to whoever's around them. Yeah. And then you've got the other side of the kids. So I I think something else that we really need to work on and (laughs) huge proponent of all these changes, no idea how we're going to do it. But what they've found in the States with a lot of the researchers is when career development is embedded from pre-K all the way through and they've developed programs that sit into the curriculum, when kids can see the relevance of what they're studying to future job roles that they might actually be interested in, they work so much better. Yeah. And, like, I found that even just doing my postgraduate study because it was something that I was passionately interested in. I found it way easier to learn about it, way easier to interact with the materials, way easier to passionately wave my way through paper after paper after paper like I was like a sponge Mm. but sure wasn't like that at school Mm. and it was purely because I'd found something that I was so incredibly passionate about I wanted to learn more and you can see that in the kids when they love what they're doing they're so much more better behaved Mm. and in in some cases when you're like as a kid you're and even in the education system, they're trying to give such a broad spectrum of it to be able to let everyone see it all. You know, even though potentially one sector may not interest me in maths or something, but I want I love writing and English is really yep. what I'm into, then that that's sort of trying to get everyone's thing, like how do we end up setting this up to do it? Whereas it was more, and I think way back of when, like previous to, like you say, to schooling stuff, mm-hmm. it was more than likely... My dad's a farmer. His dad was a farmer. We just farm. I learned how to farm. You know, like I learned how to farm and we're a tomato farmer. And, you know, like we did this and this is how I learned how to do it and it was handed down. It became my passion because that's what everyone did. Yep. So that's Um, how it was and it was directed into it. But now it's trying to find everyone's fit piece so much into trying to get into a small time. When When you consider from what it is, you know, when you go to school in grade one to year 12 or after that, uh, mm. in your lifespan, that's really not a lot of time. I just realized that how many times it's said is people say it's so different when you get to university because you're actually interested in what you're doing. You're actually going to love it. Like you go yeah. through 12 years of not not being 
not enjoying it just to get to the time in your life when you might actually be able to do something that you're interested in. And, and I suppose one of the mm. yeah, one of the things that I see, and I try and warn my kids about this. So we see a lot of you know they get lots of practice time, they get class time to do assignments, you get drafts. You get feedback on your drafts, you know, and I just look at it and go, oh, boy, you guys are in for a reprieve when you get to uni. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'll show them what you get at uni for an assessment piece. And I go, here's a slightly poorly worded assignment outline suggestion thing, and here's your marking rubric. Good luck. Like you don't have that one-on-one support. You don't have the teacher right there. You don't get to write a draft and get feedback on it, although I did get that for my master's thesis, but that was a little bit different. Hmm. Um, and there's also elements like even when you choose a degree that you think you're interested in and and that can change very very quickly you're still going to have to do things that you don't like for instance when I studied psychology and I was very passionate about the brain and understanding how people worked I detest statistics but I, I couldn't get my <laughs> Uh, you can't get a psych degree without doing it. All these that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, yeah, statistics is a it's fair a big part of that. It's yeah. a huge part. And I can read them, but I hate them. And and that was actually part of my shift into counselling is it's a lot less quantitative study. It's a lot more qualitative. Um, because, yeah, I really don't like stats. They, they make zero sense to my brain. I do not have a math brain. Um, but even then, you know, a lot of our kids are like, well, if I don't want to do it, I'm just not going to do it. Why should I? I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be a big shock Mm -hmm. because part of being human, part of living this life is doing things we don't necessarily want to do. Like, you know, Do we want, like, really, if you said to everybody, do you want to work every day, there will be people that love their jobs and they're passionate about going. But I can tell you right now, if someone said to me, stay home and read books for six months, mate, I'm on it. Mm. Mm. And that's not that I don't hate my job. I love my job. But I'd also be just as happy not working. Mm. And so we need to kind of work through that sometimes these things that we don't necessarily enjoy doing need to be done. But when we do it with the right attitude and we're looking after our mental wellness and we're acknowledging that, yeah, it's okay, I don't have to enjoy this, I just have to do it. Like I'm yet to find a single person in the world that finds washing the dishes therapeutic, fun and entertaining. Mm -hmm. But if we don't wash the dishes, we have a problem. Yeah. For sure. So, um, and, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the shift that you were talking about, Katie, with the younger generation is around a lot more things like looking after our world and looking after ourselves. And it's nice. It's nice to see that people are passionate about being healthy, not just physically healthy, but all over healthy. And we're seeing a lot more of a movement into that holistic and spiritual world where people are reconnecting with their beliefs. And whether that be religious or otherwise, and we're becoming more tolerant of that, I think. 
And I think people are linking it all together a little bit better is realizing that everything is connected, like your physical health is connected to your mental wellness and your mental wellness is connected to how spiritually connected you are, which is connected to your relationships in like it's all it's all a piece like we can't just take yeah. one piece and for example nope. mental wellness we can't like you would be a miracle worker if someone could send a person to you and you can spit them out at the end of an hour and go you are fixed congratulations oh well done i would love that it'd be that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> i would be but that's not how it works no. and i suppose the other thing that goes with that katie is is that for some of us just acknowledging just being able to go hey actually i'm not okay right now can be incredibly difficult to do because society shows us the shiny highlights reel of everybody's life you know that's what everyone puts out that's instagram that's facebook yeah because and i you know, we see everyone's highlight reel and then we compare our abysmal disaster to this, oh, my God, they're at the beach and her body and, ooh, and oh, I, can't, I can't do that. Hmm. But that's not what their life is like. No. Not even remotely close to it. Um, For a three-second scroll past. That's all fine. But like you say, the whole thing is in a lot of cases we're looking for external validation, but then when something's going on wrong with what's happening inside us or inside our inner circle, we don't want to tell everyone else about it or yeah. talk about it. Because we're then we're less than perfect. Mm. And it's funny because one of the things that I find with a lot of my kids, like a lot actually, not even my kids, my clients in general, is that we as humans, we're so connected socially. Like we need that connection. We, do, we die without it. We know that. They've done the research. We die without social connection. We are very, very bad at being kind and gentle and loving with ourselves. And if you don't like who you are as a person and the way that you present is trying to cover that up, I can guarantee you're not going to have a fun time. Mm. Mm. Very you hard. have, yeah, you have to be at peace with who you are as a person. And I'd like to think that the shift that we're seeing in the younger generation now, God, I must be getting old because I say that so smoothly, that shift that we see in caring for the environment and engaging with our feelings and being honest about being in therapy. Like 20 years ago, nobody would ever admit to being in therapy. Mm. And now everyone's like, and my therapist said, um, it's almost like a badge of honor now. <laughs> I am that messed up. I go to a therapist. Yay. Um, is it sometimes it, too, just with that, Meg, is it sometimes as well, yeah. we're thinking about therapists, is it potentially that because we're in such a fast paced world at the moment, you know, like with it, that, there's never a chance for a section of time throughout my day or my week to actually sit down and talk about myself or what's going on in my life with even if it's just someone that can sit outside the painting and look at what's going on in it. And just ask you questions, not the problems, but ask you questions. Just talk. How are you thinking about this? 
And the beauty of it is, is here's what you do. So if you try to talk to your friends or family about it, they do one of two things. They go, oh, my God, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You're insane. Or they go, can I fix that? Let me fix that for you. You just need to do X, Y, Z. So that space that you give yourself in in seeing a counsellor, and this is where it gets preventative rather than reactive, is it's a non-judgmental space. Like literally you could tell me anything and I'm going to be, all right, tell me how that works for you. I'm curious. I'm, I want to know what is it about doing that that makes you feel X, Y, Z? Or what is it about doing that that you want to change? Not here's what you need to do, but also, you know, this person isn't judging you for being you. So for many, many people, that therapy space is the only time that they can be true to themselves. Mm-hmm. openly with someone mm. else Without so they get the conditional kiss. yeah yeah um and, and you know like i i the, the perfect example of that would be the number of teenagers that come to me that are questioning their sexuality these are not not conversations they can have with their family no. or if they've tried they've been dismissed or shut mm-hmm. down quickly i imagine Oh, my my personal favorite is it's just a phase you're going through. Um, you know, so when the kids come to me and they're like, "Oh, I think this," and I'm like, "Great, tell me more. What is it that you think? When did you work this out?" Like, I no agenda, and I can say to them, "Look, there's people that can help you if you want to do X, Y, Z." Um. You know, I I haven't lived your life. I haven't stepped your shoes. Um, you know, I, I didn't go through a process of questioning my sexuality as a child. So I can't say this is something that I've lived. I said, but I know where to find people that can help you and I'm more than happy to sit here and listen to you express yourself. Go for it. And let them talk it through and come to the conclusion themselves. And it changes, like it's so fluid. But I tell you one thing, a parent that says to a kid, you don't know what you're talking about, it's just your stage you're going through, only ever achieves one thing. It's a kid that never wants to talk to them talk, about anything yeah, ever right. again. Yeah. That's it. You, I can guarantee that relationship is then. It goes from a little T trauma to a big T trauma. Yeah, we had a process um, that we implement, well, that um, my parents implemented, and it was anytime you said something, you had an issue, you came up with something, that asked, do you need me to fix it or do you just want to talk? Yeah. Like, and often with me and my sister, it was, do you need us to fix it or do you just, do you just want to rant? And yeah. that, like, that just held space in order to be able to just express whatever, talk it through, and often we'd talk it through and be like, okay, great, we're not to do thanks. And they've not yep. said a word the entire time, but it just holds space, I think, instead of having to feel like internalise it or fix it yep. or because that's like the automatic response and it's a male thing as well a lot of the time is. We're fixers. You, you're fixers. Like if you come to me with an issue, I'm going to fix it. It's like, but it doesn't want an outcome. fixing. A fixed outcome. <laughs> but parents do that too, Katie. So the, the other one that I've heard is, is are we, am I listening or are we problem solving? And it actually stops and you can use it. This is useful, not just with your kids, but with your partner. Like how many times do you go, like for me as the female, if I were to talk to my partner about something, I don't need him to fix it. I probably just need to have a rant. 
Mm. And I'm, I'm telling him because I don't have a girl handy to tell. Because a girl wouldn't try and fix it for me. They're just going to agree so, with you and tell you you're right. Oh that's exactly God, right. That's terrible. I can't believe that person did that to you. You know, they're mm. just going to beat that, hold that space. Um, so I saw recently, yeah, if you use that in communicating with your partner, if you're not sure what they're coming to you with and you say, okay, am I listening or are we problem solving? And that person can then go, actually no I need a solution to this issue and let's work through it or no I just want to have a vent let me vent Mm. Mm, just gets rid of the blurry lines yeah and then you don't feel bad because your partner's trying to fix something you don't want them to fix and they don't feel bad because they're trying to fix something and you're getting upset with them because they're trying to fix it um you actually take a lot of the problems of communication out when you do that Katie, your parents were clearly ahead of their time. A little bit. They're a little bit hippie, Meg. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, nice. But, yeah, I think that gives some really actionable takeaways to people on all fronts. I really like that. That's a little bit diverse. We've gone over childhood, trauma, parenting. Everywhere. I like it. We have. Probably my one takeaway from this, and we talked about this very early on, is is that most people see going to a counsellor, and and I'll I'll preface this with there's some separate spaces. So in in the mental health realm, we have psychologists, we have social workers, we have counsellors. So a psychologist is someone that you would use for following certain things, getting a diagnosis for some things, and working through under a Medicare rebated 10 session mental health care plan, generally speaking. Um, oh, no, they're out to 20 now. And once you use your 20 up, you then have to pay them full fees. Psychologists are incredibly expensive if they're not Medicare rebated. Some of them are incredibly expensive even when they are Medicare rebated. You then have registered social workers. So they're trained They can't do assessments and things like that, but they certainly work with uh, individuals and families working on much more storytelling type stuff. And they work on that very similar to counsellors, but they can also be Medicare rebated. So we actually have one in town here that is a Medicare rebated social worker that takes referrals from doctors. The counselling space is a little bit different. So the qualifications to be a counsellor are actually uh, a lot less than a registered psychologist or a registered social worker, Um, and there's different levels of that. So you want to look into what the qualifications are of a counsellor if you're going to see one. The beauty of most counsellors is that they're not with Medicare and they're not associated with a business. So if you want to have conversations about your mental wellness with someone that there is no record, a counsellor is the perfect person because you get to keep that to yourself. So if you're worried about, you know, unpacking some stuff or you want to go through this traumatic history of yours and you don't want a record of it on your My Health record or through your work or anything like that, counsellor is your go-to person. Mm. Um. But you also want to look into what is your counsellor specialised in? What is their training? So like I said, you can become a counsellor with just a diploma in counselling, which is a 12 to 18-month qualification. But you can also have counsellors that are much more qualified than that. So, 
you know, ask those questions. If you want to know what have they done, what is their training, what are their modalities, how do they work, you have every right to ask that. And my other takeaway for this is if you try counselling or a psychologist or a social worker and they don't work for you, that doesn't mean you are the problem. It means that person didn't work for you. Yeah. Keep mm. trying until you find the right person. Yeah. Because the same, right... Like you say, same as doctors and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, if you don't absolutely. think it worked or something happened, yeah, don't be afraid to go. It's your body. You're in, you're in the shoes. Mm. You have absolutely. the chance to move on and do that and check. Absolutely. So, you know, if if you feel like you got nothing out of it or you didn't like what they did or you didn't like the way they said something or you felt like they just dismissed your concerns, mm. go find another one. Try again. Yeah. Like, like do your legwork. Um, you know, there's heaps of different ways to find different, different counsellors and psychologists. You've got online Google searches. There's a couple of search engines. So, like, the Australian Counselling Association has a find a counsellor list. Psychology Today carries a list of all sorts of mental health professionals. Um, you know, there's holistic pages that do, I think, natural therapy pages is another one where you could just go on and search for someone in your area and a lot more people are offering telehealth to it as well now. So um, not Medicare rebated telehealth, but like the capacity to see a counsellor from your couch. Mm. So yeah. if you yeah. don't want to physically go somewhere or you find a counsellor that sounds like they'd be great but they live on the other side of the country, check if they do online counselling for you. Yeah. So, Meg, if people want to get in contact with you or they want to find out a bit more about what you do or anything like that, where can they yep. where can they reach you? Bottletreecounselling.com.au. I'm also on Facebook, so they can track Excellent. me down there. Um, and students, students at St. Pat's and Maris get me to see me for nothing. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Very good. So you have the services yeah. there that make sure that you, um, yeah, you look you up and, and get in there and Bottle try and get counsel. sorted. Absolutely. And I'm more than happy you can email me if you've got any questions. And, you know, if, if you've got questions, I'm more than happy to ring people and have a discussion about what it is they're looking for to see if, yeah, it'll be a good fit or not. Okay, excellent. Nice. Thank you very much for your time today, Meg, and your insight. That's it, all right. it was yeah, we think everyone will get everyone will get a lot a lot out of this. A lot no of stuff. Matter. We covered a lot of stuff there, yeah. mental stuff. We did. We did. Yeah. Big awesome. Thing. Beautiful. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hey. Thank you, viewers, for tuning in to another episode of 360 View. You can follow us on Instagram at 360view.co to stay up to date with everything we're doing and tag us in your podcast listening. If you found value in today's episode, leave us a like, a review, and a five-star rating. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this episode, give it a share. And if you have any questions, shoot us a DM on Instagram and we'll answer them on the show. Thanks again, viewers, and we'll chat to you in the next one.